0: Section 3 of Deeds of Daring Done by Girls. This is a Librivox recording. All Librivox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Deeds of Daring: Done by Girls by Hannah Moore. The Princess Wins, year 1417, Part 1. In my own youthful days, when turning over the leaves of storybooks, I used to pause at those tales which began once upon a time. I always had a feeling that there was something of the fairy tale about stories which began in this fashion, and I should like so to begin this day. For truly the story I'm about to tell you is but one incident in the life of a girl whose whole career was so full of ups and downs, alas, most often downs, that it reads even in the solemn old Dutch documents, like the most fanciful tale of the imagination. When she died at 37, it seems as if our Jacqueline had dared everything and lost. Lost kingdom, home, and friends. Yet even in a life so full of disaster, there were some bright spots. And in this story, you will hear how once at least, our princess wins. She was born, our heroine, at her father's palace at The Hague on St. James's Day, 1401. The little girl was baptized Jacoba, in honor of the holy day of her birth, Jacobus being the Latin form of the name James. Gradually Jacoba was changed into the French form of Jacqueline, though in the strange old documents of the times, her name is written as Jacob, or Jacques, or sometimes Madame Jake, and even often as Jacques de Bavière. Jacqueline was born a princess, and when she was three years old had the title given her of Daughter of Holland, as she was the sole heir and successor of her father, William the Sixth, Count of Holland, who, on the death of his father had succeeded him as Count of Zealand and Hanaud. In the Middle Ages, when might made right, possessions were held in many cases by him who had the strongest arm who could muster the greatest number of followers and had the most powerful connections. Marriage with princes who had great possessions of land or would inherit them was one of the ways by which sovereigns of small states strengthened their positions. And this was one reason why mere babies were given in marriage by their parents. You see, the parents could not go to war against each other when it was arranged that their children were to be married when they grew up. Little Jacqueline was no exception to the rule, and before she was quite five years old, was formally betrothed to John, Duke of Terrain, second son of Charles VI of France, called the Well-Beloved. The betrothal of Jacqueline to her bridegroom of nine years old took place in the old French town of Compiègne, where both the French and Dutch courts were present. The fine old palace, with its great number of rooms, was elegantly furnished for the occasion. And the little Jacqueline had in her company Stays, Jan, and Hans, her drummer, piper, and trumpeter. Now these were very important personages in those times. They amused the company when there was nothing else to be done. They had their duties among the soldiers, and in some of the old papers, which are still preserved and which show the expenses of the betrothal down to the last Groot, it is duly set down that Stays, Jan, and Hans are each to have six French crowns to cover their traveling expenses. This would be equal to about nine dollars of our money. Neither of the fathers of the two children were present at the betrothal, for King Charles had one of his attacks of insanity, and Count William had been bitten by a dog and was not able to be there either. But the mothers had seen to it that nothing was lacking to make the ceremony a handsome one. The Dutch expense account tells of new clothes for everybody connected to Jacqueline, even those who had to stay at home having wedding garments and fine new hat bands. When the betrothal ceremonies were over, the young bridegroom was handed over to Jacqueline's mother, and the two children were taken home to Holland to be brought up together. From time to time, they had presents sent to them from their subjects, which seemed more like taxes than free gifts, and which were duly set down in the archives. For instance, there were fish and wine for John, and there were many ells of very fine cloth of silk for Madam Jake. They had very special dispensations sent them too, so that they could eat meat on fast days. And this dispensation was extended also to the napkin-bearer the cook, and ten other servants who had to taste the dishes beforehand. You see, our Jacqueline lived in the days when people were sometimes poisoned by their enemies. So that royalty had tasters who ate of every dish before it was placed on the table for their majesties to eat. And if the tasters did not suffer, why then it was deemed safe for their masters to eat. Notwithstanding all these things, the children passed many happy years studying French, English, and Latin, and in hunting, hawking, riding on horseback, playing tennis and ball, and best of all, in skating on the long, winding canals. Perhaps they skated the Dutch Roll, and Hans, Stays, and Jan went along too, to make things merry with the fife, trumpet, and drum. These were their pleasures. It was a more solemn matter when they had to learn how to rule their kingdoms and subjects, for the little bridegroom stood next but one to the great throne of France, and Jacqueline was heir to her father's kingdom. They were married in 1415, when Jacqueline was 14 years old. Two years later, her young husband, who, by the death of his elder brother, had become Dauphin and heir to the throne of France, died. The poor lad breathed his last at Compiègne, in the very palace where he had been betrothed. Whether by poison, or from getting overheated at tennis, none can say. But at any rate, while he was away from his wife and from his family. As if this was not enough, just two months later, Count William, the kind and loving father of Jacqueline, died also. The poor girl, without father or husband to protect her, or her possessions, turned to her fatherland to pronounce her sovereign of Zealand and Hainault. But there were others who had their eyes and minds fixed on the sturdy little kingdom, and, truth to tell, they were the last persons one would suspect of such ideas, since they were Jacqueline's own kinfolk. But so it was, and in order to strengthen her position, and to allow her subjects to know and love her and to pay her their vows of fealty, Jacqueline, as was the custom of those times, started on a progress or tour through her various cities. These royal progresses were very splendid affairs. We can hardly imagine them now, and on this occasion Jacqueline's mother bore her company, and there were many of her most powerful nobles as well. On June twelfth, 1417, when the cavalcade rode into Mons, the whole city was gay to welcome the young girl who came thither to take her vows of sovereignty, How prettily the city, old even then, must have looked! From the windows fluttered banners of bright-colored cloth, many of them worked with patterns of gold and silver. So large were some of these banners that they stretched from window to window across the street. Many were the arches wreathed with flowers and branches under which Jacqueline passed, and streamers waved everywhere. Leaning from the casements were ladies richly dressed and holding chains of flowers. And children were here, there, and everywhere, come to see their little princess, who was scarce more than a child herself. Many great lords were there as well, having come forth from their castles on the wooded hills of Henault, followed by the retainers and serfs, the former clad in suits of bright armor and riding on horseback, while the latter ran on foot beside the men-at-arms and bore on their collars the names of their masters, and their doublets were of leather, and many times their feet were bare. Sheck on a milk-white palfrey, with her mother at her left hand, rode at the head of them all. There are a few quaint old pictures which show her to have been slender and tall, brown-haired, and without the high cheekbones which are so usual in her countrywomen. On this occasion, her appearance was royal indeed. She wore a gown of cloth of gold, which glittered in the warm June sunshine. Her coif, or headdress, was bound by many a chain of gold and jewels, suitable to her rank as Dauphin of France and daughter of Holland. She had not advanced far within the city before a deputation of young girls, all dressed in white, stood forth to meet her. Hail, daughter of Holland! Welcome to Mons, the leader of them said, and stepping forward hung her chaplet of flowers on Jacqueline's arm. One by one, each young girl followed in turn, and Jacqueline, turning with smiling face to her mother, said, Our good city of Mons shows its loyalty in pleasing fashion, madame. If all our other cities bear themselves like this, we care not for our uncle of Burgundy, who seeks to take our inheritance from us nor for the Egmonts, nor Arkel's, nor any who are enemies of our house. In truth, all seemeth fair, my daughter. Our good burghers always respond to our need, though our nobles sometimes think too highly of their power. Our loyal burghers, in truth, they are our best friends. Yet remember how many nobles ride with us this day, and have sworn to urge our cause as though it were their own. They rode slowly forward, the little princess pleased and happy at the homage of their subjects, bowing and smiling. At last the church of St. Waltrude was reached. Here Jacqueline dismounted and entered the dim old building, walking slowly up the central aisle till she reached the high altar. Here she knelt, kissed the holy relics, and swore to preserve all usages and privileges of the city to protect the church, to uphold the right, to dispel the wrong. Then, seated on a lofty throne that had been set up beside the altar, she received the homage of her subjects, and their vows of loyalty to her and to her cause. After the solemn ceremonies at the church were over, the royal party had a banquet given in their honor by the burghers of the city, who had arranged many festivities to give them pleasure. "'Can you not see our princess with rosy cheeks "'and sparkling eyes standing at the table's head? "'Her soft brown hair is tightly bound to her head "'and covered with a cap wrought with threads of gold "'strung with pearls. "'Embroidery of threads of gold "'and colored silks in which the Dutch excelled and richer gown, "'which is of the heaviest silk "'that even Flanders can produce. "'Long chains of pearls, which were sold by weight, "'hang about her neck,' and fur of minever binds and edges the cuts and slashes in her great sleeves and on the body of her gown. Besides the banquet, there was planned a tournament, a favorite occasion for showing knightly deeds, and it was to be held on a grassy mead just without the walls of the city, on the day following the paying of homage and entry into the city. Thither early in the morning trooped the inhabitants of the town. Among the first to go were groups of apprentices, dressed in the uniforms of their guilds or trade societies. These trudged on foot, glad enough of a holiday. Mingling among them were serfs or bondsmen, easily to be told by their metal collars. Some carried burdens for their masters who should arrive later in the day, while some merely swung a cudgel and hurried on as if conscious of their lowly position. As the day wore on, the road was dusty with the men-at-arms, knights, nobles, and their attendants, with the substantial burghers with their apprentices, and with the groups of maidens from the town, eager to see the gay company, and looking pretty enough themselves in their close fitting white caps and scarlet kirtles. Only occasionally, walking sedately by her father's side, shrouded in a long cloak to keep her clothes fresh from the dust, came some tradesman's daughter— her neck encircled with the strings of coral beads, and her gold earrings handed down through many generations, a trifle longer than those of the serving maidens, and the inevitable cap edged with lace, or of finest plaited muslin, while theirs, though snowy white, were of coarse material. Now and again amid the crowd swung covered litters, bearing either the wife of some dignitary, or some high official who preferred this manner of travelling to going on horse or muleback. At an hour past noon, out from the palace yard rode a troop of men on horseback. bright in a livery of orange and black. Their business it was to clear the road of any such as cumbered it, so that the passage to the field should be kept free, since the princess Jacqueline would ride thither on her palfrey to show herself to her subjects, who had prepared the tournament, in her behalf. As the cavalcade issued from the palace yard, there came first two score knights riding two abreast, each in a full suit of armor which sparkled like silver in the sun, each carrying his shield and a pennon of bright silk. Then came the members of the Council of Mons, in rich robes of velvet, furred and wrought, and showing on their breasts the heavy gold chains of their office. They were men who showed on their faces intelligence and a sense of the importance of their office, slow to smile and grave, but true as steel to what they deemed the right, and loyal subjects when once won to their sovereign. Next came Jacqueline, with her mother beside her, both riding on splendid horses, whose comparison was as rich as cloth and gold could make it. Right royalty shone our princess, "'robed in a gown of damask which showed in the patterned tulips of many shades, "'the flower of all others most dear to the Dutch heart. "'The which were made richer yet by stitchery of brilliant silks. "'Around the neck and long sleeves which reached almost to her feet "'were bands of ermine fur, and beneath the flowing cap "'made truly in the very shape of those worn by the peasant maidens. "'Her hair was bound with many a string of pearl.' Behind her came those who were to take part in the tournament, and never had Mons, staid old city, seen a sight of such splendor. Forty knights came ahead at a stately pace, each mounted on a noble steed in trappings of velvet, for the steeds of the fallen knights became the prizes of the victors, and it was a matter of pride to have both horse and harness, worthy to be a prize. After the knights rode forty ladies, chosen for their beauty, all richly dressed in colors of the gayest hues, mounted on palfreys, each one riding alone, and leading by a silver chain, a knight completely armed for tilting, astride a splendid horse, which also wore armor, and a plume of feathers. Minstrels and trumpeters followed, blowing on their instruments, and then came the people, shouting and cheering, and hurrying along so as not to miss any of the sport at the field. It was a lovely sight that met their eyes when the mead was reached. The grassy sward was dotted with gay and constantly changing groups. Bright awnings and banners were stretched to keep off the sun from spectators and combatants, and almost encircling the tilting ground were fine trees. Beneath whose shade many horses were tethered, while their attendants lounged on the grass. So busy were all with the scene before them, that none noted the cloud rising dark above the horizon. "'and he who called attention to it would have been but deemed a churl for his pains. "'In the little enclosure set apart for the princess and her immediate attendants, "'the hangings were of equal splendor with the rest of the arrangements. "'It was hung with gay strips of cloth and with the chains of flowers, "'and it was placed midway between the lists "'so that the tilting could be seen to the best advantage. "'All was ready.' The heralds rolled forth each with his silver trumpet at his lips, prepared to announce the opening of the fray. when a long rolling peal of thunder startled alike the spectators in the stands, as well as those who stood upon the greensward, pressing eagerly forward to see the first shock of the encounter. The first peal was followed by another, and another. The wind whirled across the wide meadow and tore into shreds the awnings which had been stretched against the sun rain descended in floods, and before Jacqueline and her party could take shelter in the rude stalls that had been built below the galleries, and in which the horses were stabled, they were pelted with hailstones so large, and which came with such force, that one of them left on Jacqueline's cheek a cruel bruise. Even centuries later, and in our own country, women and girls were burned as witches, and when our daughter of Holland lived... Many things, which would seem quite natural to us, were called omens, and were supposed to foretell either good or ill. This hailstorm was judged as a bad omen for poor Jacqueline. So strong a hold did it take on the superstitious people that while many important transactions and details of history are lost, a full account of this storm has been left in various Dutch documents, with fabulous tales as to the size of the hailstones and that they killed cattle and ruined crops. Thus sadly ended for Princess Jacqueline the day that had opened so fair. Right bravely did she bear the hurried ride back into the city. With her mother she withdrew into the apartments as soon as they reached Mons, and was seen no more that night. Indeed so wrought upon Jacqueline by the great storm and the misfortune attending it, that as soon as they were alone, she exclaimed to her mother, Let us away as soon as our train can be made ready. Nay, dear child, that would but incense our good people of Mons, who did their best to pleasure and to honor you. But, mother, that is all past, and see the grievous bruise upon my cheek? It ill becomes the face of a princess. That it does, my dearest, but it is but just to remember that, cruel though it might be, unguments and laving it with soft water will heal it and by the morrow thy cheek will show no stain. Neither must thou forget that for this bruise none of thy subjects should be blamed. To this the little princess made no reply, yet could not her mother induce her to remain longer in the city. And shortly after sunrise the next morning, the cavalcade took their way from the city of Mons, Jacqueline traveling in the litter, since she chose not to show herself again in that ill-omened place. The Princess Wins, Part 2 After the mishap at Mons, the young princess journeyed to other of her loyal towns, to Delft, to Leiden, to Amsterdam, and Harlem. Though all these cities paid homage to Jacqueline as their sovereign and supported her claims to Zealand and Henault, there was a strong party growing up against her, chiefly on account of her youth and because she was a girl. The headquarters of this party was at Dordrecht, the one city which refused to pay homage to Jacqueline. Here in Dordrecht, the leaders of the opposing party were joined by one of the uncles of Jacqueline, known as John the Pitiless, who was eager to rob his niece of her inheritance. He proposed to be appointed governor, and in this way gradually get his own hands on the whole power. Now indeed Jacqueline showed that she was strong at heart, For though but sixteen, she immediately took steps in person to suppress all such designs on the part of her uncle, and levied troops, gathered supplies, and started towards the rebellious Dordrecht. Right bravely she looked, our little princess, as she rode at the head of her troops, and ever from time to time she turned to her mother with a bright smile, and some such word as, Courage, dear madame, ever saw you troops with braver front than ours? Or, after a pause, think you that mine uncle of Burgundy will expect to see us in person, come to defend our rights? Thou art a brave girl, wouldst that thy father were here to guard and guide thee. But her mother looked anxious, and as she rode in her litter near her daughter, it was she who from time to time called to her side those brave nobles who had espoused her daughter's cause and to whose advice she looked to bring the assault to a successful conclusion. After the first day's march, Jacqueline's bright confidence was shaken. Wearied with being all day at the saddle and bearing the weight of her suit of armor, even though the shirt was of the finest Milan steel and flexible and light, Jacqueline dismissed all her attendants and begged her mother to bide with her first base before going to rest. When all were gone, and they were alone together, and the curtains to the tent secured, poor Jacqueline, but a tired girl after all, cast herself down beside her mother and hid her face in her lap. Oh, Mother, cried she, methinks I'd give all Dordrecht to be once more in our own palace at The Hague, safe, sheltered in mine own room, and rid of this armour which chafes me so. Nay, daughter, speak not so loud. Bend thy lips to mine ear, For truly it would shame you much Should the men-at-arms Without hear thy plaints. But, mother! Lower, dear child, speak lower. What? Weeping? Countess of Hinault and daughter of Holland? Shedding tears? Thy daughter was I, mother, Before I was daughter of Holland. So fearsome am I of those cruel men We go to meet with their spears and arrows. Methinks that already I feel them in my flesh. And at the very thought, there were fresh showers of tears. Can this be my brave princess? Is this the maid of whom her father said, Brave as a lad with more wisdom than her years, And better fitted to rule than many an elder one? Sure, child, the hailstones have in truth bewitched thee. Ah, mother, I will be brave tomorrow, since needs I must, But say thou wilt not leave me this night. Stay with me. The darkness affrights me, mother. Truly, I had no thought not to stay with thee, dear child. See, give me thy hand, and I will sit beside thy couch till thou art fast asleep. Jacqueline threw herself on the couch, which had been hastily spread in her tent, and made soft with the skins of fox and bear, and drew over her buckskin doublet a cloak of frieze. Kiss me, mother, as though I were once more thy little daughter and leave me not. And holding her mother's hand as she had done in babyhood, our poor little daughter of Holland, from very weariness, fell fast asleep. Before dawn the next day, all the camp was astir. The sound of the armors at work, the stamping and neighing of horses, the shouts of the soldiers as they hurried about their labor, made a din quite at a variance with the quiet of the night. the only sounds which disturbed the solitude were the cries of the sentries that all was well, and the occasional whinny of some restive horse. Yet still Jacqueline slept on, and by her side her mother watched, hoping that the sounds from without would penetrate the deep sleep of the weary girl. At last the door of the tent itself sounded the notes of the bugle, and Jacqueline started up, her eyes clear and flashing as she turned to the patient watcher at her side. Once more, Countess of Hainaut, dearest lady, she cried. Jacqueline, the little girl, has fled back to her childhood. Her mother drew a long breath and smiled in return. Let us praise Saint James for that, she answered, and pushed aside the hanging folds that covered the opening to the tent, so that the fresh morning air would sweep within. Hail, lady! A bright awakening and a joyous day! And forward pressed two pages, special attendants to Jacqueline herself and, like her, dressed in suits of bright armor. But while theirs glittered as bravely as hers, on her helmet, on her shield, and on any small spot which offered a space for the tool of the goldsmith, there were wrought the various heraldic devices which belonged to the countess by right of her great and royal descent. The younger of the two pages, so young, in fact, that his cheek was scarce less rosy and fair than that of his young mistress, bore her sword and spear, which gleamed in the cold beams of the wintry sun. The elder of the two carried her shield and pennon, the last of the fine blue silk, showing the arms of Bavaria quartered with those of the Hinoe Holland, and watching over these was deftly embroidered the image of the virgin and the child. Jacqueline came to the door of her tent, and as her eyes watched the busy scene, she looked both rested and well-pleased. A fair omen for the daughter of Holland this day, she said, and pointed towards the lad stood by with her pennon. The bright clouds in the sky had but touched the faces of the holy virgin and the child, and reflected in the silver threads with which they were wrought, caused them to glow with almost the colors of true flesh and blood. The countess speaks well, said Eberhard, lord of Hootwood, then whom Jacqueline had no more faithful follower, and who had just come up from the camp to see how the young countess had rested. A fair sleep and a long one, thanks to my lady mother,' said Jacqueline, turning to her with a loving glance, who was ever wont to take upon her own shoulders the burden of my humours. Full well did Jacqueline repay the kindness of her mother, by her love for that lady which her dignity never caused her for a moment to conceal. Going once more within the tent, she bathed in water fresh and cold, and though the air was thought too keen, she had the armourer summoned to rivet on her greaves so that the legs below the knee would be well protected, lest some who were on foot among the enemy might get near and do her harm. "'Bring my helmet,' next she ordered, "'and sling it to my saddle-bow, for this cap of velvet shall serve me to wear till we near the troops which my false uncle hath gathered.' Kissing her mother, she whispered in her ear, "'Fear not, lady, I be a lad this day.' And then, placing her spurred foot on the knee of her page, she mounted easily onto her saddle. Once on the back of her war horse, her courage rose higher still, and seizing her pennon in her hand, she drove her horse onward, shouting in her sweet young voice, "On for the love of the daughter of Holland, and death to those that defy her!" Across the low bare fields and through the scrubby woods rode the small army, which numbered barely a couple thousand of men. When the sun stood high in the heavens and showed the hour of noon, though the wind was keen and little comfort was to be had, they rested for the sake of the horses as well as the men. Whilst they stopped thus, and with fires and food sought to take such ease as they could command, a band of picked men, less than a score, rode forward to gain what news they might of the enemy. Soon they could be seen spurring quickly back and they brought the welcome news that John the Pitiless was encamped just without the town of Grocombe, that the men were scattered about as if preparing to halt for the remainder of the day, and that they had learned from some faithful adherence to the Princess Jacqueline that her uncle had been able to muster scarce 500 men more than were in her own little army. At this news, all sprung to their saddles, since the brief winter's day was all too short for that which they had to do and Jacqueline, with helmet on her head and sword in hand, rode at their head. Scarce an hour's brisk riding brought them in sight of the army gathered from among those who opposed the princess. There was much confusion, evident among them, and it seemed as if they had just learned of the approach of the daughter of Holland, and were preparing to hold their own as the best they might. Straight as an arrow, forward to where his pennon showed the presence of her uncle, rode Jacqueline, No need to shout encouragement to the brave men at her back. Yet ever and again she would turn and call, For the love of Holland! Or, For the Virgin and St. James! And ever and anon would come back the answering cry, For the love of Holland! For St. James! When almost within the flight of an arrow from the enemy, once again did Jacqueline turn, and this time her cry was borne back on the wind with the clearness of a trumpet, For the love of the daughter of Holland! At this the hoarse shout that rose among her followers could have been heard a league away. Still keeping her horse's head straight for that pennon, she had marked so well, she sent her pages to the right and left, bidding the soldiers spread in a wide circle, and never draw rein till they had circled the enemy. On they came like a whirlwind, the enemy, seeming not to know what manner of tactics they were like to meet, formed a compact body. The rushing mass of men and horses, with Jacqueline at their head, swept madly on, nor paused nor swerved till they had flung themselves against the enemy. In a moment all was frightful confusion, men unhorsed and being trampled underfoot by the riderless steeds, and in many cases the horses suffering themselves from wounds that had fallen on them instead of their masters. Twice, above all the tumult and din of metal when spear met shield or helmet, could be heard the cry, For the daughter of Holland! And each time it brought back the answering shout. At these moments, even when the enemy seemed to waver, as if they had not dreamed that the hereditary princess could be there in the thick of a battle in her own person, surrounded by the noblest of her kin and those of the highest rank among her party, Jacqueline never gave a thought to her own safety. From right to left she flew, encouraging here, supporting there, bringing up laggards to harass a weak spot among the enemy's forces by the sheer might of her presence striking awe among the foe. At last one more stolid, or more cruel than the rest, rode straight at her. His lance thrust at her breast, the good mail shirt she wore and her trusty shield turned aside the blow, but so sharp was the shock that she fell off her horse. Now indeed came in that training in horsemanship, on which her father had ever insisted, and in which she had been practiced since her earliest years. Still clinging to the bridle, she managed to keep from falling, and with the aid of her faithful pages who kept ever at her saddle, she managed to regain her seat. Now, by all I hold dear, cried she, "No mercy shall be shown to the enemies of Holland and my house. From that moment, with voice and example, she inspired her weary men. Till the fall of the dusk on the December day, they routed those that were still left alive and sent them flying over the waste country back at Dordrecht. Many of the enemies of Jacqueline and her house fell during this battle. The most noted and most vindictive as well, being that William of Arkel to whom her father desired her to wed in the interests of peace, but who stubbornly refused our little princess and always remained one of her most bitter foes. Her uncle, John the Pitiless, escaped and returned to Dordrecht with the remnant of his forces. Nor was this the only effort he made to capture her lands, but for years he pursued her relentlessly and did not hesitate at any means to gain his end. Involved in endless wars and intrigues, both with enemies within her own land, as well as those abroad, the battle at Grokham was the only time when Jacqueline, daughter of Holland, led her troops in person, and no amount of persuasion could induce her to assume command again. The night of the victory at Grokham, the little army encamped within the city which they had wrested from the Burgundian party, and the celebration of this happy event was accompanied with feasting and much joy. A thousand healths were drunk to Jacqueline, countess and commander, and there were toasts to future victories, and the rosiest anticipations of success, the victors imagining that because of one triumph, their enemies would be vanquished. When the daughter of Holland laid herself down to sleep that night, her mother, with a happy face, bent to kiss her goodnight. "'Mother, dear lady,' whispered this victorious countess of sixteen, "'I pray you tell no one that last night I wept from fear.' Her mother smiled as she kissed her, and answered in her gentle voice, Thou hast my promise. End of section three.